Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. Every other week, we also look at how my group handled the materials we've been writing over the course of the season with my game recaps. This season, we're all about the Fallout role-playing games, so grab your book and get ready to build along with me. If you don't have one, check out your local game or bookshop, or check out the Modifius Entertainment website. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. No outstanding notes for this week's show, except to once again apologize for the mess up with the group recap two weeks ago. I can assure you we played last week, so we've got a recap this week. Speaking of recaps, before we start building this week, we need to recap what we built on last week's show. Victor and the group headed to the Twisted Tap, and Victor took some of the group inside with him, while the rest posted up outside to watch for unwanted or unwelcome visitors. Victor and his group were specifically waiting for the arrival of the mysterious Longsworth, and the outside group saw him first, but not before they saw a group of super mutants escorting a ghoul to the front. As they waited inside, Victor did meet with Melanie Zombrowski, along with other people assumed to be part of the St. Louis underworld. They also met with the ghoul, who identified himself as Jesse Arnott, noting that he'd taken over Barnabas O'Reilly's businesses. By this point, the outside group was bored out of their minds, but they didn't have to wait much longer for Longsworth. He stood out from the others who'd come and gone, wearing a white suit and blood-red tie when most everyone else wore black. He also had no support team escorting him to the door, though once he entered, the group did a bit of surveillance and noticed a group spread out wide around the building. They also noted that all of them looked almost exactly alike. Back inside, Longsworth made his way to Victor's table, and the two had a back and forth before Longsworth suggested they meet at the Twisted Tap in the morning, alone, with Sylvia being the neutral party sitting with them to ensure all goes well. And yeah, it's for um, business. Longsworth moved on, and the inside group left, catching up with the outside group. Each group reported what they knew to the other as they walked off, which of course means they're all aware that Longsworth is probably utilizing synths. The following morning, Victor and the group returned to the Twisted Tap, though this time Victor came out wearing a Pip-Boy, which the group had never seen him wear. He noted it was just in case they needed to call in the cavalry. Victor met with Longsworth, and the group checked the immediate area for synths, finding none. When Victor emerged from his meeting, he reported that Longsworth proposed they combine their forces to take out Melanie Zombrowski before she could move on either one of them. As they were headed back to Diamond Pass, they were ambushed by a crew from Garson Tactical, or more to the point, synths in Garson Tactical gear. They fought, and when the group succeeded, probably barely, they made their escape with an exceptionally annoyed Victor still trying to figure out who wants him dead. That's where we left off last week, and this week we'll pick up with Victor and the team back in the safety of Diamond Pass, inside Victor's office at the Third Base Saloon. He's removed the Pip-Boy, pulled both of his weapons out and dropped them unceremoniously on his desk, and has pulled any remaining ammo from his coat pockets. He tosses the coat onto a table against the wall, drops into his chair, and almost immediately begins thinking out loud. And he'll be talking at a faster pace than normal. I'd also believe he'd be cursing profusely, though I'm not going to put that in here since I try to keep this show family-friendly. If you are a user of profanity, however, feel free to color this however works best for you. 
We were obviously supposed to believe that Garson Tactical was taking another shot at us. Well, at me, most likely, but they are still pretty sore with you, so anything is possible. The question is whether or not we're supposed to find out about the synths, or if we were supposed to either be dead or run away. This leads to a completely different question. If we were supposed to find the synths, were we supposed to link them to Longsworth? Yes? No? Maybe? So let us follow a different path of thought for a moment. Let us assume that whomever orchestrated this attack wanted us to blame either Garson Tactical or Longsworth. I mean, if I wanted to get rid of someone I considered to be either a rival or a serious pain in the rear, I would do something similar. Taking that into account, I would say that for the moment, neither Garson or Longsworth are responsible, though I will begin making inquiries concerning the both of them. We, on the other hand, have two suspects that we will need to deal with ourselves. That's Melanie Zombrowski and that new fellow, Jesse Arnott. Whew. He finally pauses for a moment to allow the group to voice their own thoughts and concerns, and he'll logic out their thoughts as well. Bruno arrives with beverages for all and leaves a full bottle of vodka on Victor's desk. He pours himself a triple and downs the glass before he lays out his game plan to the group. We will start with Melanie. While I have not always had the best relationship with her, I do not believe that she would do something so blatant and obvious as to hit me with synth dress in Garson tactical gear. She would hire super mutants to jump me or get one of her subordinates to come into my bar and blow it up. She would make sure there was little to nothing that could be traced back to her. So this is what I would like you to do. Head to the brewery and request a meeting. I will give you a letter from me so that she understands you are there on my behalf. Do some digging. I trust that you can play this well enough so as to not give our hand away. I suspect she will play innocent to you for as long as possible, but if she had something to do with this, she will also drop hints. However, if you feel you need something extra to get her to open up, let her know that Longsworth has proposed joining forces with me to take her out. Gauge her reaction to that and act accordingly. Now, Victor doesn't get very explicit by what he means by act accordingly, but he does tell them that if she wants to meet with him, they can set up the meeting for whenever works for her. He also lets them know that while they're doing that, he will be working to pull as much information as he can on Jesse Arnott, as he intends to have the group head over there next. Now, I need to pause for a moment to clarify something. If, by chance, Barnabas O'Reilly is still alive in your game, he's the one the group will be seeing next. Obviously, Victor doesn't need to pull info on him. What he'll be doing instead is reaching out to him through intermediaries to set up a meeting for tomorrow morning, and he'll expect the group to go there with him. So the group's on the clock. That doesn't mean they don't have a few minutes to freshen up, eat, and buy more ammo. I mean, let's be honest here. They've just been in another firefight, so they're going to want to wait a minute before they head out. It's still mid-morning, so they've got plenty of time. Once they've done those things, it's off to the Lemp Brewery. Now, I've not been doing the walk time properly over the course of the show to this point. Heck, there have been several different walks to other places I haven't done properly. Anyway, I'm going to try to fix those moving forward so that we've got a more realistic time span going on. And I said that because the walk from Diamond Pass to the Lemp Brewery will actually take closer to an hour than the times I've given in the past. As has been the habit recently, we're going to go without an encounter along the way, mostly because the group just had a pretty major one earlier. We've done some background into the Lemp Brewery in the past, and I also laid out some basics on the design and layout, so check those out in the archives. I think our time here is better spent getting into the interaction. Melanie Zombrowski comes to collect the group from the lobby within minutes of their arrival, and she's dressed as she has been in the past when they've been here, if they have. Black cargo pants, black t-shirt, and hair pulled back in a serious bun. 
She takes the group back to a conference room and offers beverages. I don't think we need to play out the entire dialogue of this conversation here. What we will do is outline it, and you can bring it to life however you choose. So, unless the group leads with the Longsworth offer to Victor, she's going to play coy with the group. The truth of the matter is that she does know about the attack on Victor and the group, but that comes from word she's gotten from her people, as well as reports from so-called neutral sources. She is not responsible for it, though. If you want to make your group work for it, and they're probably going to want to make roles, it's Charisma plus Speech Difficulty 2 that will confirm what I just said. Once she's been made aware of Longsworth's deal, her demeanor will, like, change on a dime. She's no longer being coy and instead gets dead serious. She wants to know as much about the deal as the group knows, and they know everything Victor found out in his earlier meeting. If the group doesn't bring it up first, she will suggest that she needs to meet face-to-face with Victor and would like to meet at the third base saloon, asking that the group let Victor know that she'll be there around 7 o'clock tonight as she needs to be at the brewery until they shut down for the evening. She will thank the group for bringing the information to her attention and will escort them back out to the lobby and they can leave from there. Since Victor told them he was going to work to dig up information on Jesse Arnott with the intentions of sending them to meet with him next, the group should probably return to Diamond Pass to meet with him. But we let them off the hook once. (laughs) We're not doing it again. They'll be hit by another group of those Synth and Garson clothing dudes, one per group member, If you haven't printed off the character sheet for those, they're up on the website, so make sure that you do so. And a little something different this time. Once the attacking group gets to half its size, those remaining will take off in different directions. There's a reason for that, but we'll get to it later on. Maybe this show, maybe one down the road. With the combat concluded, they can safely return to Victor. Needless to say, the topic of the group being ambushed again is going to come up at some point, as will the conversation they had with Zombrowski. Victor will address those before getting into what he found. Insofar as the ambush, his theory is that whomever attacked them this morning has probably been keeping tabs on the group, as they'd already probably figured. He will also theorize that the attack was intended to do one of two things, if not both. Shift their focus from who would want to attack Victor to who would want to attack the group, or to take out the group so that Victor would lose the most effective weapons in his arsenal. Either way, it's now obvious somebody's playing for keeps and they need to figure out who pretty darn quick. Victor's agreeable to meet with Zombrowski, especially since she didn't so much ask as insist on it. He wants the group to go check out Jesse Arnott and be back before the meeting starts as he wants them present for it. That's where he'll share what he's managed to dig up in the couple of hours the group's been gone. According to his sources, Arnott has been handling operations for O'Reilly in West County, mostly personal protection and gambling, but there are also rumors that he'd been acting to remove competition for the boss in that area as well. Arnott didn't wait long for O'Reilly to be gone before he apparently waltzed into the office, informed all the associates he was taking control, and killed a couple of the super mutants to prove his point. The sources say he's ruthless, efficient, and deadly serious. They also say he could convince a man to confess to things he'd never done without laying a finger on him, so he cautions the group to not underestimate the man under any circumstances. By this point, it's around 1 p.m., so Victor urges the group to head over to the office as soon as possible so they can get a meeting, get through it, and get back in time for the Zombrowski meeting at 7 
He also authorizes the group to let Arnott know that Longsworth had suggested to him, meaning Victor, that he was interested in joining forces in order to take out Arnott and take over the business. Yes, he fully admits it's not true, but since he doesn't quite know where Arnott stands on all of this, he's willing to take a chance that Arnott isn't responsible, and the way to find out is to throw that out there, then keep tabs on him until or unless he asks to speak with Victor face to face. And again, he wants the group to handle the discussions how they see fit. That means the group's off to play information gatherers again. It'll take between 20 and 30 minutes to get to the old opera house. And when the group requests to see Mr. Arnott, they are given almost instant access to him, though not in his office. Someone goes up to get him and he comes downstairs to meet them. He leads them into what appears to be an old smoking area. And while it does have doors that close, it's a bit cramped. Arnott doesn't look as sharp as he did when the group saw him at the Twisted Tap. He's not wearing his suit coat, his tie is askew, and his pants look like they haven't been ironed in days. He's also sweating heavily and appears to have the jitters. Let the group make an intelligence and medicine check difficulty three. Success means they figure out he's a chem user, and by the looks of it, he's out of whatever his favorite is. If the group gets four successes, they realize he's addicted to Mentats, though the specific type isn't known. For our notes, however, he's addicted to orange Mentats. Everything you need to know about those is on page 168. If they ask him, he'll just say he's not feeling well and will do anything he can to get around the subject. However, for those looking to use this as their way in, it's charisma plus speech difficulty two. That takes into account the withdrawal symptoms are not his feeling, by the way. A success will cause him to admit he's jonesing for more orange mentats, and if the group just happens to have some of those, he will gladly tell them what they want to know for the mentats. For that matter, if they have any mentats, he'll agree since mentats, regardless of type, will at least take the edge off of his addiction for a while. If they fail the check, he'll just continue to deny. However, they can make another charisma plus speech check difficulty one to take advantage of his current condition to work around what Arnott may or may not know concerning the attacks on Victor and the group. It's simple. He knows nothing. He has nothing to do with synths as he finds them to be an abomination. He prefers to use super mutants, and I think we all can see the irony in that. If he's confronted about O'Reilly's previous association with iRobotics, he'll tell them that the deal was ended when he took over this part of the business and it came from iRobotics, since they apparently found themselves a new partner to work with. And no, he doesn't know who that is. He will also admit, with the success, that Longsworth approached him about combining forces to take out Victor. He notes, however, that there's something about Longsworth that he doesn't quite trust, so for now, he's willing to not get involved as he'd prefer to stay on Victor's good side. But he also wants to stay on Longsworth's good side, so he's decided he isn't going to take a side in this particular fight. And no amount of convincing is going to change his mind on that. Insofar as the possible war between Victor and Longsworth goes, he's intending to be Switzerland. If the group gave him Mentats, he'll give them one more piece of information, and that is that they might want to dig into iRobotics, but do so on the sly. He believes there's a lot more to them than anyone knows, and while he'd like to do it, he's got his hands full with trying to fully secure his position at the top of the heap in this organization. If the group tells him what Victor suggested, he'll merely shake his head and say something along the lines of, shouldn't have surprised me. 
Now, if the group didn't have Mentats to give him or gave him something else, he's working on coming down. The advantage for the group is that all of their checks will be one difficulty lower, though he'll be rambling and mixing words and phrases a lot, so it'll take more talking to get it all out. I don't want to write that up here because I want it to be in your voice so it sounds natural. The info they can get here is everything Arnott has, and they leave shortly afterwards. By the time they get back to Diamond Pass, they've got a couple of hours until Melanie Zombrowski shows up to meet with Victor, and he, of course, wants to hear how the meeting with Arnott went. We'll assume the group got all of the information. Victor's not surprised that Longsworth tried to make a deal with Arnott, noting that it would be what I would do in his position. He also seems almost pleased that Arnott has chosen, for the moment at least, to keep his group out of what is coming next. Victor explains. What that means to us is that while he might not be out there with his men trying to eliminate either side, he will be willing to sell or exchange information. Sometimes it's better to have the enemy be neutral than to face them in a fight. He's not surprised to find out Arnott's addicted to a substance. He will note that it will make him easier to deal with in the future, especially if we need to ensure he is on our side, or at least not on the side of whomever we ultimately have to fight. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the Arnott angle. He seems content to let that sit for the moment, though he does acknowledge needing to get more information on iRobotics so the group can make another run at them. Instead, he wants to focus on where the group will be during his meeting with Melanie Zombrowski. He intends to have it out in the club proper and will use his corner booth to hold it, since it's dark, private, and a bit out of the way. He'll have the group spread out around the club, noting that they don't need to hear what is said, only to ensure Zombrowski doesn't bring a team to try to eliminate him. How the group decides to spread themselves out is a decision for them to make themselves. Let them take as much time as they want to make that call, and this would be a good time to figure out just how the third base saloon is laid out. Frankly, this is one of those you can lay out however you'd like. Just note that it's two stories high, with the second floor open to the floor below so people can see what's going on. It's also not a whole lot bigger than about 1,500 to 2,000 square feet. Obviously, if you're not in the U.S., convert that to meters. I'd almost argue you could drop it below 1,200 square feet, especially since there's that second floor. That floor, thanks to the hole, is about 400 square feet less than the first floor. Anyway, I think you get the picture, so let's move on and get to the meeting. At a few minutes before 7, the group easily sees Melanie Zombrowski make her entrance. She's dressed exactly the same as they saw her earlier today, and she's got a couple of other women with her, also dressed seriously in their black cargo pants, black leather combat boots, and black t-shirts, and they're armed. Laser pistols are holstered at their sides, and laser rifles are slung across their backs. Zombrowski meets with Bruno, who asks that her guards take a table while he takes her to Victor. The guards aren't happy about it, but at some point, Melanie catches a look at one of the group members, smiles, nods, and tells her group that things will be okay. Now, unless someone in the group happens to be really close to the table with Melanie and Victor, they're not going to hear anything, since the bartender just happens to turn the radio up pretty loud to Diamond Pass Radio about the time Melanie gets to the table. They only speak for about 20 minutes, and when Melanie rises to leave, Victor rises as well. They shake hands, and it appears as if they're both satisfied with how the meeting went. He will glance at the closest group member, hold up his hand to signal him to wait, then heads for his office. Bruno will head over a few moments later and let whomever Victor met with know that he wants about a half an hour to digest what was said before he speaks with the group, 
and he's instructed Bruno to give the group his table and a bottle to keep them entertained. 30 minutes later, Bruno comes to collect the group and bring them to Victor. By this point, he's been conducting business all day and finally decided to roll up his sleeves, open his shirt collar, and try to relax. By the look at the bottle of vodka on his desk, he's been doing a lot of relaxing as they noticed it was about half full before the meeting and now is pretty much empty. He gestures to the group to sit, then brings them up to speed on his meeting. For the most part, Melanie told me the same thing she told you earlier. Funny thing, she asked me if you were working for me exclusively. I had to tell her that you are not, but that you have taken a great many cases and caps from me. I think she might be interested in hiring you for something. He downs the last of the vodka in his glass, then pours what's left in the bottle before he continues. Back onto our subject, though. Melanie has agreed that Longsworth is up to something and that it would be in both of our interests to join forces to figure out exactly what that something is. She was able to prove to me that she had nothing to do with the attack, and she also believes Arnott had nothing to do with it either. Her intelligence says that Arnott does not have the muscle to pull that off right now, as he is still trying to settle the balance of power. He nods in acknowledgement of the group having pretty much gotten that same information earlier. He does add, however, Melanie told me that her guards have noticed some odd people wandering around the perimeter of the brewery at different times of the day. Her people cannot get close enough to them to figure out who they are, because as soon as they get close enough to maybe identify them, they bolt. So I suggested that perhaps we should watch the Watchers, see where they run to, and then see what we know about that person or persons. And he gives an almost apologetic smile as he continues. I volunteered you to handle this. You are already working this for me. You have already been attacked twice because of this. So I would assume you would like a chance to find out who is doing this and get your revenge. If the group agrees to do it for nothing, he certainly won't stop them. However, he's willing to allow them to barter. And while he'll start at 100, the barter check can be done to see if they can get more. Now that we've got actual numbers for Victor, thanks to the character sheet, use those. Also, that 100 is 100 caps per group member. Regardless of how the barter goes, once it's done, Victor requests that the group get to the brewery around 10 o'clock and set up to keep an eye on it overnight. And since that's going to be a whole thing on its own, we're going to stop the build here for this week. Next week, we'll pick up with this whole overseer thing and see where it might lead. Now it's time to get into my group session from last week. But before we do that, we need to recap what we did the time before. And the answer is this, not a whole heck of a lot. The group grabbed the four jobs off the board and decided to try the first one, which was the liquor delivery to the north side of the city. They had the two gang encounters and the game ended right after the second one. So we had a lot of canvas to paint on this week and here's what happened. We picked up with the group approaching the area of North St. Louis where Briar lives. They met with the security and were escorted to his home. Briar thanked them for delivering his booze, and when they asked if there was anything else they could do for him, I made a roll for Briar. Rolling well, I decided that he would be so thankful that they'd actually thought to ask him that, that he told them to see him if the robots were ever looking for upgrades. It was at that point that the characters finally thought to look around the room, and that's when I got the opportunity to point out that the place is a robot repair person's hoarding paradise. They realized the good old Briar might just be willing to help them out. And I did, though I should have probably thought it through a bit more before I agreed to do it. 
See, Tyler's been wanting a flamethrower for his robot for quite some time, and he asked if it would be possible to replace his buzzsaw. I decided that he could, because without reading the stats on a flamer, I thought, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) Famous last words. Jim helped Tyler work all of that out, and when he was going over everything he could now do, I realized I might have given him a bit too much. And to his credit, Tyler made it clear that if I thought it was too much, he'd give it up. But... I have a saying, which is that the game's primary purpose is to be fun for the players. So I went with it. Moving on. With the job done and the group paid, they decided to work on the next closest job. And they've basically decided at this point they're not going to do the job that requires them to treasure hunt a case of Nuka-Cola Quantum. Which really doesn't surprise me. I basically figured they'd never do it, but I included it because your group might. That means the next one is the extermination job at the church. The group headed to Soulard and met with Walter, who explained what he needed done. He also made it very clear that keeping damage to the church to a minimum was part of the job, and I did that because I really didn't want to see Tyler burn it to the ground. They didn't want to enter as a group since they weren't sure what all was in there, so Jim decided to float up to the second floor and try to see what was there. I did note that he could see three green figures through the glass, though he wasn't sure what else there was. Since they needed better numbers, Gabe decided to head inside and see what was there, since as a ghoul, the feral ghouls inside wouldn't attack him. He was able to note about a dozen ferals in there, and so he headed back outside so the group could game plan. The group spent a decent amount of time discussing their plan, but what they ultimately came up with was this. Since there are glowing ones inside the church, only those with immunity to radiation would actually be inside the barrier walls around the church. That means Tyler and Jim, since they're robots, and Gabe, since he's a ghoul. Everyone else was going to take up positions on either side of the opening in the wall opposite the door. Gabe would open the door, let three or four ghouls out, then shut the door and hold it shut while the group dealt with the ghouls. Once that was done, you let more out, lather, rinse, repeat. So that's what they tried to do. Gabe let the first four out, but he had a difficult time keeping the door shut, so four more came out at the end of the first round. Same at the end of the second round. However, it didn't much matter since everyone seemed to be rolling well and they were dropping ghouls like it wasn't a big deal. Once those were done, they were waiting for the glowing ones to come out, but they didn't. Jim floated back up to the windows and figured out why. The doors were closed. So he did the obvious thing and shot his laser through the windows and killed the ghouls. Now, I could have chosen to have him roll all of his hits, but since the doors were closed and I was fairly sure they wouldn't jump through the windows, I just decided that he got them, eventually. That meant it was time for the group to enter the church, scavenge on the three floors, then head to the basement. If you'll remember back when we wrote this up, I said there would be four mole rats for each group member. After running it, I realized this was way too much. So, if you haven't run it yet, cut that number in half. Seriously. It took us eight rounds to run this combat, and that was with not using hit locations on the mole rats. Otherwise, who knows how long it would have gone. I used the mole rats' ability to burrow and pop up, so that's partially what took so long. However, since they were in the basement, it was determined that Tyler could now safely use his flamethrower, so long as he aimed down, which he did and took out four rats each time he hit. Like I said, it was a slog, but they prevailed, and it took well over an hour to run both combats. So if you haven't run it and you don't cut things down, be prepared to be at it for a while. The group met up with Walter and got their pay, which turned out to be about 150 caps per person. They also cooked up all the mole rat meat, so they've got that as well. 
We wrap the session at that point, and that's where we'll pick up next time. That also means we've come to the end of this week's show. While you're waiting for next week's show to hit, why not check out our other podcast, Role-Playing History. This week, we've got the first half of our list of the best role-playing game adventures ever, and we're celebrating the two-year anniversary of the show. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials mentioned on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games, and they're used on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you'd like to check out all of the fine products produced by Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we find out just who or what seems to be stalking around the Lent Brewery and try to figure out what that means for your group. But that's next week. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.